Hello and welcome to Locus Classicus, a new podcast between myself, Will Cravels, and Michael Brown, and hopefully a host of other very uh, interesting and intriguing guests that we'll have on from time to time. Now, Locus Classicus, the name comes from a friend of ours, uh, Brent Stickley, who introduced me to this word. I didn't really know what it was before. But essentially, for those who don't know, I assume many do, it just means the first instance in the, the written or textual record of, of an idea or a, yeah, sort of an idea or a concept or a quote. And it can also mean sort of the most important instance of an idea or a concept and quote that people sort of use to define that um, quote um, or, or idea later in time. So I think when, when Brant was using it, he said, um, I, had, I had been talking about uh, healing crisis, this, this word in Chinese, and he said, what's the locus classicus of that, of that idea or that quote? And so I, I talked a little bit about it. And that gets to sort of the ethos of this show, uh, which is going to be um, talking about how when we're, when we're dealing with concepts in Chinese medicine, when we're having conversations about Chinese medicine, we always want to have that locus classicus in mind. We want to be to a degree grounded in texts and um, the history of, of, of thought in Chinese medicine to guide our future conversations. Um, with that context, uh, we can be more um, specific in the, in the ways that we, the, that we address certain topics and um, we can be more accurate in, in the way we think about how certain ideas uh, certain treatment strategies were deployed over time. And this is an idea that both Michael and myself are very passionate about um, and we're well equipped to, to discuss because we're both big nerds of, you know, the, the literature of Chinese medicine over time. Isn't that right, Michael? Yes. And now, Will, if I'm not mistaken, you perhaps unknowingly performed a form of a uh, locus classicus on the Chiao vessels with your recent work. Yeah, exactly. You could say that there are, there are several instances of sort of locus classicus in there, for instance, talking about how everyone knows like the Chiao vessel diseases, for instance, um, like a very important disease is sort of this like uh, yin being urgent versus yang being slack mm. or yang being urgent versus yin being slack and I had a big discussion about what that actually really meant. Um, <clears throat> and I went to the locus classicus for that quote, which which you could say is like the in the Nanjing or the classic of difficulties, stuff like that. Yep, yep. And yeah. so, yeah, I, I think the idea that we're trying to bring together with this podcast is to try and look at certain ideas, theories, or statements that people kind of make throughout Chinese medicine, or even just concepts, and try and give a little bit of context about them, and even perhaps hopefully try and debunk some 
myths that have been floating around in Chinese medicine as well. Would you agree? Yeah, yeah, I would definitely agree. I think, you know, part of it obviously comes uh, out of our, it stems from our own conversations, right? Yeah. Um, just seeing stuff online, seeing stuff in sort of the, the like general conversation among practitioners in the West. And sometimes like maybe being a little bit frustrated by, by what we see and wanting to add sort of that, like a voice that's, that's really rooted and grounded in stuff we've read, you know, and sort of the classics of Chinese medicine. Well, yeah. And I think, I think it just kind of comes back to almost like debunking ideas that are being continually promoted. And it's kind of, almost like people continue to promote them, but they don't question how did they begin? Are they legitimate? Uh, how to say like discussions of history or historical takes as well. And I think sometimes yeah. they kind of almost become like these almost like kind of mythological stories where perhaps someone said, mm. has said something and now this idea has continued and continued and you know, for people who go and study history, there's almost, you know, scant historical basis in, in the things that they are saying. Right, right. And some will argue, I think, that, uh, you know, it doesn't really matter as long as it's grounded in clinic, right? But yeah. I think for, for our part, we, we want to push back against that idea, correct? I, well, for, for me, I, I think Chinese medicine... Well, even if you were to say like traditional Chinese medicine, it's kind of a key part of that is keeping it kind of, I think, in the lineage of the texts and keeping it has, has what it should be, which is kind of based in Chinese medicine. And I think that if someone wants to kind of like change Chinese medicine or develop a new idea, they need to talk about, well, they should at least try and prove and justify why they are doing what they're doing and, and base it and base it in kind of like historical fact as well. And yeah, I, I think that if we're going to look at some of these ideas, some, some claims that people have made throughout history, um, then we can kind of dis dissect them and look at them and see whether or not these claims that people make are true. Uh, and I, I think the idea is that, and, and maybe something that gets lost, is that these texts are not just uh, polemics that people have written throughout history. They are recordings of long, long, you know, sort of the, the essence of long, long periods of clinical study and in clinical experimentation, right? And people aren't just writing, you know, these, these major texts are not just like one-offs that people just sort of are making up out of their heads. Um, they're the real thing. And so if you want to take an idea from them and then expand upon it or something, you at least have to know what, what they were talking about when they started. Otherwise, how, how is your uh, sort of, how are you going to approach this in clinic, right? Because these guys, they approached it in a, in a particular way in clinic and they got particular results. If you don't understand that, how are you going to repeat those results, I guess, would be what I want to say. I, I think that's a really important point because I always come back to the idea of Chinese medicine. It's, it's about context. 
sometimes people you'll hear like a phrase in Chinese medicine as well and the, the question is like someone might say oh you can only do this you know but then my question would be okay what did this person when did this person say it what context are they saying it is that a general yeah. rule is that a hard rule that you should always follow you know and yeah it, is is it yeah. because because i think like sometimes people will say things and it's about a specific instance disease or context and then if you don't perhaps understand the person who's saying it or the context in which it is said those things get lost and then it gets mm. let's say mm. kind of misappropriated or misused yeah. or misunderstood well said well said well i think we should probably talk about why we might be a little bit qualified to to make such claims right well get into our backgrounds a little bit well for myself i've released uh two well, it's basically two books, but it's a complete translation of a Qing Dynasty text called Explanations of Channels and Points, which is really the only preaching work on that that basically annotates and explains acupuncture points. We see a lot more of this type of literature in the 20th century, but really this was the only work like this that exists prior to um to the to 1911 or the last dynasty of china and in addition yep. to, to my own translations i've worked on editing uh alan saw's works on uh Zhang Dingyue and also worked with you on your text uh will which i'll let you talk about right and of course you're also just like one of the biggest geeks of uh sort of chinese medical liter literature that I've, i think i've ever met well, yeah, I just I, I do like to just kind of go out and see what people are writing about and, and, and see what topics people feel important. And not only that, also see the structure of books, because I think if you look at one of the things about Chinese medical literature is that books are structured in very different ways as well. Sometimes people might put an emphasis on on like laying the book out according to Zhang Fu, according to elements of phases according right. to symptoms, according to interior exterior problems. And, and I like to look at that and, and see, well, what does that tell us about the author and what are they emphasizing in that as well? Because I think that tells us a little bit about how they view the medicine. Absolutely. And that will certainly come very much in handy uh, in our discussion, hopefully that we'll be having today with regard to TCM and how uh, books became... How, Claims that people make about books, the, the way books being organized, uh, changing drastically during the, the 1950s and 60s, right? Mm. Um, but but uh, as for myself, yeah, I'm practitioner in Taiwan. I got most, I got all of my training in Taiwan at the uh, China Medical University here. And uh, after graduating, <clears throat> the what they call the post baccalaureate which is like a five year training for for uh, chinese medical doctors i went on and did a uh, a master's thesis in the chinese medical literature classics and history department at the at the same school and um that's when i really got into to the history of chinese medicine the literature really got into reading the old texts. Um, I was focusing on sort of like Qing dynasty, 
materia medica and jingfang or like uh cold damage how that would be the way uh, sort of like uh, classical classic formula right classical formulas um and all of these commentaries of classical formulas that that really exploded uh during the qing dynasty and you have so it's a real treasure trove uh of knowledge and so i just i just got really into that some big names like zhang zhang zhizong uh chen xiuyuan uh tang zhonghai etc etc you missed your your favorite though huang yan you (laughs) yes of course and yeah how can i how can how could i possibly forget huang yan you so yeah and then after that i sort of met up with with you and also with some some of our other friends um in the states and uh i think you you guys even pushed me further into like really um learning more from different traditions and stuff like that so i think that's a real characteristic of, of some of our friends yeah yeah i will i will say yeah we're, we're very lucky to be able to have the kind of discussions that we've had in private and i think one of the aims of the of this podcast is to try and bring some of those discussions that we've had privately into the public arena so people can also either kind of like learn or debate with us as well or we can kind of yep. respond to these ideas that are out there as well because i think it's uh one one important aspect of chinese medicine i think that is sometimes lost in the west is a little bit of like kind of the debate or discussions about different things as well you know and hopefully with this we can kind of uh help give it a little bit of impetus so that we can kind of have a little bit more discussion and debate on different ideas and 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 things like that yeah and one of the nice things about grounding things in texts and the the, liter- the literary tradition of Chinese medicine is your debates don't descend into well my master said or you know my teacher said and then you said well what did then typically the next question after that is well where did they get that you know where is like that coming from and then sometimes there's a lack of understanding of that and so if you can sort of point to to well this came out of this idea this guy was influenced by this all of a sudden you can have sort of a more interesting debate. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and I also think then that, yeah, it becomes a little bit more uh, tangible, at least for myself, when I can see this, how do you almost say like current of ideas as well? Yep. Yep. Totally. And I think that that really helps when discussing Chinese medicine. So today's, today's topic, Will, will, will you introduce it to us and we'll make a start on it? Sure. Yeah. Well, today we want to discuss a broad topic, uh, but basically what it is, is this idea of the construction and the making of TCM, right? Traditional Chinese medicine, as opposed to CCM or classical Chinese medicine that a lot of people locate in the 1950s and the 1960s in in China during the uh, communist era under Mao Zedong, and specifically also this idea of Bian Zhong Lunzi, uh, which <clears throat> is sort of a key feature of, of TCM or traditional Chinese medicine. And we wanna to talk today about some of the claims made about this period and about TCM itself, and try to kind of deconstruct those and look at them again from this like historical perspective. 
yeah i, th- I, th- I think that'll be the idea i mean we'll, we'll see how we go Th- this might last we might not get through get it all get through it all today but because it is quite i think can be a heavy and dense topic and not only that i think that i could say that it is quite heavily misrepresented in the west a, a, a lot of western claims i won't say all western claims there are some uh good books out there as well but i will say that co- it is commonly misrepresented in the west this this period of time and then also the conclusions that people draw from this conclu- um, this period of time right yeah the conclusions that people draw is important <clears throat> and you know I think part of maybe one of our concerns or, you know, definitely my concern is that because of certain conclusions that have been made, then people sort of write off China or, you know, TCM, they write off everything that's gone on basically then since, um, you know, the 1950s or something. And there's, there's, it's used in some context as a, as a way of saying, well, just listen to me and not to, the, the wealth of knowledge that's that that continues to to come out of China even to this day I don't know that's no I, just I, something I, yeah I, yeah I completely agree so let, let's let's go back to this time around the 1950s and kind of mm. even, and talk a little bit about what was happening during this period of time because I think sometimes people almost look at it as like would you say a negative event or detrimental event to Chinese medicine during the 1950s, at least that's how I see it kind of portrayed in the West, that this was a time when Chinese medicine, several aspects of it were moved out, you might say spiritual or Shen aspects, they neglected emotional aspects of the medicine during this time and these or perhaps you know they removed things from certain books how do you think that is an accurate portrayal of the 1950s or and what mao or the and the communists did to chinese medicine i you know i i don't think it's it's terribly accurate um and you know when i started out in chinese medicine I really kind of, I think maybe I read some stuff, maybe specifically by um, Elizabeth Xu, uh, the a scholar, I believe she's out of England. Um, and I think I was, it gave me this impression of sort of the, it was almost like the soul had been ripped out of Chinese medicine or something like this. But at the time I didn't have uh, a very strong understanding of what happened um, and even recent, up until recently, but but we read a lot of stuff in preparation for this, right? And yeah. sort of a, a a different story kind of seems to emerge. Um, do you think we should go into maybe some specific claims? I was wondering if maybe we we could talk about specifically a talk we listened to recently. I don't know if we're naming names. No, I think. In, in this podcast, but but if we could talk about some of the claims uh, made in that talk, I, I think that that would be worthwhile. I think I think one of the the claims, and this was a, a discussion about kind of the history of Chinese medicine, um, and and looking at traditional Chinese medicine versus classical Chinese medicine. And would you say one of the claims that the person made was that they took out a lot of like uh, mentions of spirit in the books? 
I, for, for my, what I heard most from him was um, about emotions. Okay. Yep. Right. Yep. Because he was saying, I want to represent his claim as, as like accurately as I can. But I think what he said was, you know, while he was studying in, in China and like following in clinics, he would often observe that doctors just didn't pay any attention to the emotions of the patient. And when he suggested that they should, uh, they would say, you're being superstitious. Stop with all of your superstition. Yeah. Yeah, so yeah. That was, that was, that was sort of the line that, that I heard from. Now there was some good stuff in this talk, but when I heard this, I really, it really made me pause. Um, because I, you know, it, it gets to sort of the heart of one thing that we hear. And I, I think there's probably some truth of it is that with, with, the communists and Mao, um, one influence that they might have had is that they wanted to get rid of what we call like the feudal elements um, of Chinese medicine. And one of those would have been this so-called like superstition. Mm. So this is a claim that's made about, about Chinese medicine in the 1950s or 1960s. It, it remains to be seen whether or not that's actually the case. Now, in for this particular uh, person who gave this talk that I think a fair amount of people listened to, um, he was claiming that what that superstition meant was somehow that in TCM, starting with TCM, they removed the idea of emotion from Chinese medicine, uh, claiming that or saying that that was a superstitious thing. So what what can we say about this claim? For me. I think it comes back also to this idea. I would link it whether or not he personally said it himself. I've also heard the claim that a lot of people that they would take out like mentions of Shen and spirit from books as well. And I think though that he makes this idea about it in the clinic. I think that they are somewhat linked together because, you know, if you have these texts and, you know, the, they, to make TCM, they removed these spiritual aspects these kind of emotional aspects, then when these people get into clinic and you ask them the question, what are they going to say? Oh, it's superstition. So I would kind of say that these two ideas are somewhat connected. And so for yeah. me, I, I can talk a lot about the idea or at least a, lo a lot about the literature of this period of time as well. And mm. from what I see is that, you know, what, what happened in the 1950s is Yes, they wrote new literature for, for, oh, they wrote Chinese medical textbooks, okay? But yep. they certainly, as far as I know, weren't mass editing old books. They weren't getting rid of old literature. I mean, I, the amount of old literature that still exists to this very day would blow most people's minds who've never seen um, Chinese medical literature in Chinese. Would you agree, Will? Yeah, yeah. So one of the things that I <clears throat> I read in prep preparation for this was Kim Taylor's very, very good book. Um, and I think it's called Chinese Medicine, Communist China. And so she she tells us very specifically what was going on during that period. Um, I believe the first textbook came out in 1958. Yep, yep. Correct. And um 
the the first classes also began in around 1959. Now, during that time period, um, what Taylor claims is that there was a strong emphasis on ancient texts. Mm. And in particular, those would have been the Huangdi Neijing or the, the inner canon. Yep. Um, then also the Shanghan Lun, the, the treatise on cold damage, Jingwei Yaoriye, um, Golden Mirror, the, the classic of the Golden Mirror. Is that correct? Uh, something uh, like a uh, central formula from the Golden Cabinet is, I think, how it's usually. Oh, right. Oh, oh, sorry, the yeah. Jingwei, not the Izong Jindian, right? Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah, the yeah. Jingwei Yang. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then yeah, finally, yeah. the last text would have been the, the Zhenjiu Dacheng. Yeah. Um, which is the, how do you call great, that one? Great compendium of acupuncture. But is that the one by Yang Dijou in 1601? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Can, can, I, can I just put in another point as well? When we're talking about mm -hmm. these first classes, first textbooks, things like that, th these are like, it's an official textbook, right? And it's, um, official university classes, there were universities and other kind of books prior to this, right? It's not like these things didn't exist before th this, correct, Will? You mean you mean in terms of historically or or just like, I mean, there was like, I think we one thing I, I saw was that, you know, throughout the, the 20th century, there were schools that popped up. Zhang Xichun had a school... Yep during the 1920s in the, in the North, then a very important school was in either Nanjing or Shanghai, I, think, I believe in Nanjing. Mm. Um, and there was a, there was a group of, of um, doctors there, including Ding Ren. Well, and um, I think, I think Cheng Danan also came back to Nanjing as well to set up a school. Yeah. But, but, but well, so I guess, he, I guess my point that I'm trying to make is that yeah. these, these, this was, a, it was a national curriculum that was being set up. Was it? In, in the 1958, yes. like a national sort of curriculum, the, things had existed prior to that. So we're kind of not saying this, these were the first classes or these were the first kind of textbooks, but these were the first kind of like, I guess, like a national textbook and kind of a national run classes as well. That's, that's correct. And so, so they started four schools in the, in the country in, in 1959. Um, <clears throat> and those schools were um, about 70% Chinese medicine and 30% uh, Western medicine. Yep. But you're right that, that prior to that, there was, there was all kinds of stuff going on. Mm. And very interestingly, I think that, that I think this, this was something that really surprised me um, in, in Kim Taylor's work. What she said was that, that actually while this was all happening, while this was being set up, the government was also promoting folk remedies. Now, the reason for this was because um, in around 1958, there was a bit of a diplomatic kerfuffle, you could say. There's a di diplomatic uh, break between Russia and China. And so they had to, they started up this campaign of self-reliance um, and uh, Part of that, they just said, well, we have to sort of dig into our folk remedies and stuff. And so, I don't know, it just really sort of went against this whole narrative that we hear about, about, oh, we've got to like knock away, we have to get all of the, the feudal elements out of Chinese medicine, you know, we've got to get rid of superstition and stuff. I mean, these folk remedies, stuff gets really kind of 
kind of funky mm. when you go into various different parts of China. Um, so, I, yeah. I know one of the things that I saw that still existed there, which I think they would classify as a folk remedy when I was there, was using like a, it's almost like kind of like a rope to burn. It might be like a moxa rope or something like that. Um, and that's definitely kind of not not too common, I think. Yeah, is that called tianjiu? Something something like that. I'm not in, not entirely sure, but it's some sort of you do moxa with like a bit of string or rope or something like that as well. So all they weren't. It wasn't as if um, they were just completely opposed to any of the ideas. And then another very interesting thing. Um, was this 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 concept of juyo, which is mm. sort of like uh, the shaman tradition um, in in Chinese medicine? And what what was very interesting to me was that even though uh, juyo, which is like these talisman, you make talismans for people, you do prayers for people and stuff like that, even that though that was outlawed in the 1500s during the Ming dynasty, right? That was struck from the imperial clinics. Renning Chiu apparently was very interested in Juyo. Huh. And he, he, was, he was trying to think of ways that maybe he could um, reincorporate Juyo into the, the new medicine because he thought it, it could be very helpful from what? A psychological perspective. So just for those who don't know, Renning Chiu was probably... I would say the most prolific Chinese medicine author of the 20th century. I, mm. I, I don't think there's another person who's written as much. I've got his complete works, which is 12 volumes and nearly 7,000 pages. So wow, um, he, is, he, he was incredibly, incredibly brilliant. And he was, I think he was probably most known for coming up with, and I, and I think you probably would have studied this, at your school is like a good Joshua sure like uh, right. kind of studying the schools of Chinese medicine or the or the currents as well where you kind of go through and you look at all the different famous physicians and what they kind of contributed to the medicine as well so exactly yeah so if we come back to kind of the the creation of uh, TCM i think one of the things that that perhaps people you know they they, they are critical about it but if we look at the people who were working on uh, creating these texts, I would say arguably they were some of the greatest minds of the 20th century, at least the Chinese medical minds, you know? Oh, yeah. For, for oh, yeah. For example, you know, Qin Bo Wei, he, was, he worked quite a bit on creating some of the uh, traditional Chinese medicine texts, did he not? Yep, I believe... Um... In the in the nineteen sixties, he was he was a big, big big player. And, and who was uh? Do you know who Chimbo Wei's teachers were? Chimbo Wei, I mean, one of his big teachers, I think, was Ding Ganren, right? And, and also, I think Chao Ying Fu as well. Yep. So he Chimbo Wei would have been like one of these like graduates of the school in, in Nanjing, I think. Was it either I Nanjing thought he was in Shanghai? He might have been in Shanghai. I thought he might have been in Shanghai. Okay. Okay. I and thought so he yeah. yeah. But he's he's like inheriting that like Mengha mm. tradition, right? That's yep. coming out of, out of the, the southeast. Yeah. And, and, and I, um, I wonder how much uh Chowing Fu 
kind of influenced his uh, kind of approach to formulas or classical formula as well. Because uh, Chow Ing-Fu was, he, he's one of the most kind of celebrated classical formula practitioners. I think probably probably thanks to Professor Huang Huang, who puts him on a very high kind of pedestal, Chow Ing-Fu. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Yep. That's right. So, so this guy, Chin Bo Wei, uh, there's, you know, there are other people as well, and and Volker's work, Chinese medicine, contemporary China, mentions a few other people, such as uh, Feng, Feng, Feng Yao Zhong, and I think um, Yue Mei Zhong as well. But Qin Bo Wei, Bye. you know, he studied with two of two amazing physicians, you know, and he's he's working on creating a text for the, you know, for the the first textbook as well. So, I, I think, you know. At least for me, I've I've read Chinbo's way work works uh, Chin Wei's works in Chinese, and I think they, that they are very very good. Yeah, I think they are good, and you know, to our point before, um, I just don't think that that emotions were really neglected. And also, if you look in these textbooks, you do see very detailed discussions of, for instance, um, essence, qi, and shun. Yeah. Um, you see, you, you're going to see insofar as that these, these um, academies were very, very oriented towards the classics, there would be very, very detailed discussions of what we call neyin or internal um, causes of disease, which are the emotions, right? And those would be grounded in the discussions that we find in the Huangdi Neijing mm. and elsewhere, Zhu Bing Yan Holun, etc., so what um, I what I would respond to that is I would I would say that emotions in Chinese medicine, as they are like now, as they were in the 1950s, would kind of almost always have the same how do you say like like ratio of importance. If you were to look mm -hmm. at a book in say 16th century for like for example Jing Yue Chuan Shu, you'll see there are a few chapters on emotions, maybe one or two out of a 64 kind of volume text. So we also need to know that Chinese medicine didn't, it wasn't always about emotions, you know, it was about people with abdominal pain, you know, uh, maybe like, you know, constipation, bleeding, headache, you know, different kinds of pains, things like that. That, that yeah. um, the, we, just, we just need to take a small break and we'll reconvene after this small break. Thank you very much. So we were just talking about the emotional claims and, and talking about the kind of the ratio of it in Chinese medicine as well. And I think that that is perhaps another key aspect that is a little bit misrepresented is that people think that in the history of Chinese medicine, that emotions were the biggest aspect of perhaps being treated by Chinese medicine as well. And from my research, in looking into texts, that 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 just doesn't appear to be true, in in my opinion, as well. When I look through texts, you'll see um, often just like uh, one chapter on emotions or something like that. Whereas you know, and and every disease will have a have maybe like a chapter or something like that, or or you know a fascicle about it as well. And you know, books will sometimes talk 
upwards of 30 to 60 to 100 diseases as well. So I would say, you know, yes, emotions played a part of Chinese medicine, but it was never at the forefront and it was never the be all and end all of Chinese medicine as well. And so perhaps when this uh, person was going in to see the person at the, at the clinic, you know, maybe they were having like knee pain or, you know, back pain or headaches or sweating or something like that. And perhaps at that time, the practitioner didn't exactly think that, you know, the person's emotions were that pertinent to the case, I could say. Yeah. And the other aspect of that, I think, is that the way that Chinese medicine views emotions, at least in in my um, experience, the way they treat it is they're always treating the effects of the emotions. It's not as if it's very rare for them to treat the emotions themselves. Okay, you do have certain um, acupuncture points that will calm people down. Mm. Um, you have certain herbs and, and so forth. But you're, in terms of an analysis, you're always looking at what, how the emotions then impacted the physiology. For instance, yep. if you look in the, the Huangdi Neijing, right? Yep. We have a whole yep. chapter talking about how different emotions impact the physiology. Yep. Now, now when, the, when we go to treat then, you're not treating the emotion, you're treating the fact that there's been this, this physiological impact, mm. okay? And so, so throughout the, the history of Chinese medicine, one of the most important emotions, and almost I would say like a catch-all word for emotions is jing. Right, Jing being sort of fright. Mm, uh, yes, Lorraine, Lorraine Wilcox had a, had a, an interesting post about this recently. Yeah, you know, if you look in the the Jubing Yuan Holun, there's a ton of stuff on on fright, right? And so for Jing the Qi Luan, right, it, during during fright, the the Qi becomes scattered. Is that yeah. correct? Yes, you said Duan or something like that. Yeah, 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 kind of, yeah, kind of, almost like even almost kind of like chaotic, you could say, scattered, right. chaotic, something like that. Yeah, and so and so, uh, for something like that, you develop an analysis of how that emotion plays in the body, right? Mm-hmm. And then we're treating that that physiological par- that uh, pathophysiological paradigm, not the emotion itself. Um, yep. And so you see that time and time again throughout history. Another good example is Juranshi, right? Um, yep. You know, Volker had some has some great stuff on on Juranshi and and um, this idea of depression, yes, right? Yes. And, um, how depression again plays out in the body. So it's mm. very rare for there to be a direct treatment of the emotion itself. It would, so it would seem. Um, I- I, yeah. I, I, I agree completely. And, and when I was teaching students at the student clinic, a lot of them would come in and, and tell me, oh, this person feels stressed. And I'm like, well, okay, well, what do they feel when they feel stressed? Because, you know, mm. yes, everyone feels stressed, but everyone will experience stress or other emotions differently as well. You know, what does nice. one feel when they feel sad? What does, do they feel like, do they feel their stomach maybe is heavy or sinking or do they want to eat something or do they want to cry? 
you know, nice. because those yep. will all give you different information about kind of the mechanism in the body and perhaps even what is needing to be treated you know if they want to eat it then maybe they have a little bit of a vacuity in the spleen if they want to cry well you know the the um tears are the fluid of the liver so maybe they actually have a little bit of liver kind of constraint or depression and by crying they help releasing that kind of out as well so once again so that's i think that's exactly what you come with saying is that you actually need to look at the manifestation of the emotion as well not just the emotion itself what is that right. what what is happening within the mechanism that um of the body and and how is that kind of emotion impairing a certain mechanism as well and if i can come back to the text that you mentioned mentioned the Zhu Bing Yuan Ho Lun which was i think written yeah. in in uh in the 16 uh sorry 6 600 um ce something like that yeah. is that they actually yeah they call the emotional diseases in there something like the jiu qi or the nine qi so mm. the, kind of the emotions are actually kind of impairing the mechanism of qi in the body yeah i'll give a, a couple more examples uh in the huang yin aging you have a chapter on bravery right yep. and so they the way that they talk about bravery is so interesting right they say what is how how is a brave person able to be brave and they say well it's because the the um the organs um sitting below his diaphragm are sufficiently robust and sort of replete that that she is able to maintain itself within the chest cavity and so the person can maintain a certain amount of anger, right? And so it's like, it's this like incredibly, I mean, I would almost call that like a materialistic account of, of, of emotion, you know? And then another one that I think is, is cool is like in terms of, you know, thinking about how we think about anxiety these days yes. in the context of Chinese medicine, in a classical um, context and um, in terms of like, these like guizhi kind of patterns, like guizhi jiaguai or like mm. uh, you know, lingui ganzao tang or something where it's this like bentuan or, or uh, running piglet disease or um, and so forth, right? Again, it's yeah. it's analyzed in terms of this qi counterflow. Yeah, uh -huh. yeah. That, that, make, or, that, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, even, um, oh, I think you could look at it in even in, um, is it... Um, can my does our tongue which is is that the agitation of the five zong as well? yeah that's like called like called like dry uh, uh zong dryness right organ dryness. Oh, no no no, no. isn't that agitation the 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 zao zong zao or something yeah, like that yeah, yeah. Like, oh yeah yeah, that's yeah. Right. agitation or something like that as well so once again you can actually like you know they're talking like the viscera or the you know uh kind of almost agitated <laughs> um exactly yeah. so so even then you can kind of almost argue that that is even somewhat of a materialistic view as well absolutely and so yeah. so i don't want to something that i thought there was like i was just kind of thinking about this the speaker is like coming out of this uh like like european context in which you know Europe has just been incredible in terms of, of its psychology, right? From, from Jung to Freud, and then later on to Lacan even. Mm. And, and so like the French, the French uh, psycho, psychoanalyst Jacques Lacan, 
And so they they have such a strong tradition of that. And the psyche is so paramount in their analysis of the person of disease of society. Mm. And so in a way it kind of felt like a bit of a reflection of that onto, onto Chinese medicine, you know? I, I think, I think you raise a really good point. And I think for me personally, we should stop trying to make Chinese medicine into something that it isn't and appreciate it for what it is, you know? Yeah. Because, yeah. because it is truly a brilliant system of medicine that is very, very rich. And we don't need to make it into something that it isn't. Yeah, we should try to understand as much about it as it is, right? Yeah, I, yeah. Although I would say, like, for, for with some of the stuff, you know, that's going on in the West, um, I was just thinking about this, this recently, because right now a big thing in China is identifying, sort of doing more of the work that Huang Huang had been doing, where mm. he's identifying, he's trying to flesh out patterns, basically. So mm. what is a Guizhi Tang pattern? What is, or sorry, constitution? Uh, what's a Chai Tang uh, constitution? And they're looking at for all of these identifiers, right? Yes. And so I think, you know, there, there is like some room for, for people, you know, because the West is very, um, fixated on on psych the the psyche mm. to really maybe look at some some of those things and see if there's a way to to incorporate that into like a a zone or like a pattern yeah um, well, well, because, well I, yeah. I, I think i think even uh professor huang huang sometimes does a little bit about that like for example like he might look at uh talk about like this I think it's like this bansha kind of almost like frown or something like that, you know, furrowed brow. Yeah. And so even that, like you can almost like kind of say that that is almost like an, like a reflection of an emotional state or an emotional disposition as well. Absolutely. You know, Absolutely. Like, like he has, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. And he talks about kind of sometimes Chaihu people will be very, what do you say? How does um, something susceptible to kind of changes in temperature as well, you know? Mm. And that that that's kind of almost like kind of like borderline kind of like I think an emotional kind of idea as well. Yeah, or like with Guizhi, he says like mm. they're they're prone to anxiety, and yeah. by contrast, like Ma Huang types should not be prone to anxiety. Yeah. Right. Yep. 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 So so that's like a cool avenue that I think that um, the West can explore because you know that it's it might be like sort of a blind spot to a degree mm. with, with China, but like for the West, like people are very fixated on it. So there's just one other aspect that I would like to kind of talk about is maybe a little bit of this idea of people who will claim like Chinese medicine being, how to say like uh, kind of transported out of China via an oral tradition. What, mm. what, 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 what would be your take on that? I mean, I think to a degree it is, it is possible. Like, uh, for instance, if you look at, um, like, uh, the, the Shunhammer tradition, yeah. uh, you have like, I don't think that there, because Leon Hammer, he didn't speak Chinese, right. He didn't read yeah. Chinese. Right. 
Not to so my to a degree, so so to a degree he was getting just spoke it was like sort of a spoken tradition like through clinic people were learning from yeah from shut yeah um who again was a part of the same tradition that like chimbo was a part of like this mangha yeah uh tradition so 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 it is possible but but we can trace that right so we yeah. know um and we can trace and as soon as you get back to china there's plenty of books that yeah. you can look at um, and the same could be said with like ICAM and yeah. like, uh, yeah. articles that, you know, as soon as we get back to China, we can look at like Tim, Tim Bawe, yeah. um, we can look at like the, the Zeng, Zeng Tian Liu, like text. Yep. 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 But very, yeah, very much so. So, uh, I mean, the, the, the thing I guess for kind of like both of those is that I think that they don't necessarily, they, or they're not contrary to a lot of the main literature of Chinese medicine as well. But what, what I guess I could say is that there are some traditions out there where if you try and find their information in texts that you will not find any valid sources. And then they claim, oh, that comes from an oral tradition. Do you think that we should right. be skeptical of those kinds of claims? I, I would never kind of put ICAM or the Shen Hammer into that category for obvious reasons. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think you would, you would really want to know, like, where is, where is this stuff coming from? Um, hope that it would sort of jive somehow with, with, with stuff that exists, right? In the, mm. in the canon. Because at least, at least for me, one of the things that I note in Chinese medicine is that there's almost like, for people who, who I guess, authors who are really kind of like passionate about Chinese medicine, they always try and draw it back to the classics, you know, in, in all, in, in general, all the texts that I've read, there was always a reverence towards the classics of the medicine as well. So when you get to these kind of traditions and they no longer really align with the classics or there's large kind of gaps in what they think, then my question is, well, kind of how did you arrive at these conclusions? And, and, and I think that also comes down to not just, I would say, um, certain ideas of like medicine, but even when people teach, I think that you've got to be able to ask people, well, how did you arrive at this conclusion within the context of Chinese medicine? You know, how are you validating your claim? Because one of the mm -hmm. things that I think we do in the West is that we allow people often to say anything that they like about Chinese medicine and not provide evidence for it. So, you know, why do we allow this in Chinese medicine? Well, the, typically the idea is, well, it worked for me in clinic, right? Yeah. I mean, well, I think the other big problem is that we go through school and because, well, Chinese medicine school, I would say, and because our classes, we generally don't, get taught where these ideas come from we just get taught in a modern textbook and this this is actually where i think a valid criticism of tcm is is how tcm is taught in the west because i think tcm is actually like we we lose a lot of the source-based information when we take it from china to the west we maybe lose oh who who developed this formula and why? Instead, we just get taught guipi tongue. We don't get taught that it's a li dong yuan formula or something like that, you know. And we don't understand the context in which it was 
prescribed and his understanding of it as well, you know, or we get taught that maybe like the heart is the, is the kind of emperor and it governs the Shen Ming. What does that mean? You know, when was that written? Should we pay much attention to it? You know, these kinds of ideas, we don't kind of get taught to go back and look at the original source-based texts to provide us a context with these ideas. So then when people will talk about Chinese medicine, we're no, longer, we're no longer expecting them to give us sources for their arguments. We just kind of accept it based on the fact that they're in front of us talking about something, thus they must know about it. When I really think that we need to put greater emphasis on people, uh, how do you say, substantiating claims that they make about the medicine, especially if those claims are somewhat contrary to certain views of the medicine. Yeah, I agree. And there's, yeah, like you said, there's always been a tradition in Chinese medicine of trying to tie what, what you're doing, even if it's innovation, into what's what's existed before, this sort of weaving, right, of 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 the of like Jing, like Jingwen, right, being this yeah. the name for, for a text. So so I, I I definitely agree with that. Um my what would you say, what would you oh, sorry, say as on. like a like as like a a counterexample like Look at how, for instance, like tongue acupuncture has sprung up. Um, no texts coming out of, I think this comes out of like the Shandong region. There aren't any like texts from, from Shandong that, that like show you any of the points, but, but someone like Tong will basically say like, you know, I learned this from, from, my, from my ancestors and they learned it from theirs and, and so on and so forth, you know. Seems like an oral um, tradition, and it's very, very. It's just completely different from from anything that's existed prior. I, I would say that maybe it could even be. This is perhaps not quite as different to tongue, but a little bit of like psalm acupuncture as well. And I, yeah. I, I guess for me, like, I think if if you could even look at some of the names or the points of tongue acupuncture, they still are referencing aspects of Chinese medicine as well. True. So yeah. I think I think you could probably look at it that way as well. I'm not that well. I don't understand tongue acupuncture that well personally, so I can't mm. comment on it too much. But I guess one thing that I see with tongue acupuncture now is that there is a large variety of ways that people are practicing it as well, which actually that might be kind of like problematic because there was no text about it as well which means which is allowed for a kind of a proliferation of interpretations about it as well you know which isn't necessarily a bad thing but it also that means that like people can have a lot of opinions about it as well yeah yeah for sure and if you look i think for me again like just to our point you know um because i've been fairly interested in tongue and just you know what ended up being really uh, connecting with me was like the the works of uh, of Wei Jie Young um, because he does connect it back to um, all this theory from from Chinese medicine from the classics of acupuncture you know and he's like really steeped in that stuff. Can and I just intervene even- and just say just for some of our listeners they might know not know that you're talking about Young Wei Chair right? Um, I think it's his. Uh, that, that's who you're talking about, right? Young Wei Jie or, yeah. or Young Wei Chair. I thought, people, I thought people were more familiar with, with calling him Wei Jie Young. 
I'm not, I think I think his um his book on the website is Young Wade Chair or something like that. Like uh oh, okay. like the yeah, Wade yeah. Giles system. I might be I might be incorrect. Oh, but anyway, sorry oh, to interrupt. Love that Wade Giles. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but so so just you know, and again, just like the how how he syncs that back up with with all that this this tradition, mm. it just gives you such a robust context for then applying his you know the 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 dung style the the tongue sort of methodology right mm, mm, mm. And, and so i think that's that's really nice yeah I, you know one of the things that i think with, with chinese medicine is that like innovation is, isn't a bad thing but if you want to innovate you have to go back before you go forward and i don't necessarily mean just like reading the huang de neijing or the shanghai lun i think it's also kind of imperative that you also understand perhaps some of the main arguments throughout the history of Chinese medicine as well. So, you know, and, and that kind of means understanding a little bit about maybe Luan Su, uh, you know, Li Dong Yuan, Zhu Dan Shi, uh, Zhang Jing Yue, because I mean, like, otherwise, if you kind of just read the Neijing and then you make your own conclusions about it, you're kind of missing a large body of work in the middle as well. You know, what did these people have to say about it as well? And you know, you're kind of missing out a lot of important scholars' work as well and practitioners as well. And I sort of think it's kind of, you know, if you were going to write a scientific paper, you perhaps, you know, you wouldn't go back to the first person who invented something and kind of ignore all the scholarship up until you were writing something. I think you would kind of want to read through all the scholarship kind of possible as well. So it's kind of one thing yeah. I, I would always say is like, you know, if people don't read Chinese uh, you got to be careful with some of the perhaps some of the conclusions these people are drawing or making about the medicine as well. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, I definitely encountered this with like the the when I was researching the chow vessels, right? Mm. And I think that was part of the the impetus for for writing the book because we saw just a lot of stuff that that just seemed sort of we didn't understand how people were drawing these conclusions about the child vessels um, because none of it had, had ever existed before. And, and they also, you know, they don't really explain their methodology or their sources. It's almost like they just have decided and arrived upon a conclusion without doing any of the kind of work required to making that conclusion. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And so, but then maybe they'll try to say something like this is the real um, sort of understanding of, of the 80s or something that, that got lost um, during the, you know, during the communist revolution or something like this. And I think that that's a, that's a point that I wanted to make is that I think a lot of times what the communist revolution serves the, 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 sort of um, purpose that it serves for people is sort of this foil where they can say, well, prior to, to this, this is what the medicine really was, yeah. right? And yeah. so, it, in, in, in truthfully, this has always existed in, in Chinese medicine. You know, there's always been this appeal to a mythological past. I think mm. that's something that Volker Scheid has, has spoke about throughout time. You know, how many times do you see in the preface, prefaces to book books like, um, for instance, you know, we've been translating uh, Huang Yuan Yu's uh, book, 
recently, right? Yeah. And the very beginning just starts off with in the time of, of Zhang Zhongjing, right? In the, the mm. Hang dynasty, people really understood the medicine. Yeah. But sadly, yeah. in, in, you know, with generations to come, people forgot. And then yeah. there was a period of, you know, 1500 years leading up to me where now I'm going to show you what the real medicine is again, you know? And so he, and to be honest, you know, Huang Yunyu, like a lot of his ideas are sort of new. Um, yeah. I mean, well, just so, look at, look at, look at, you know, Zhang Jingyue as well, right? He was extremely critical of people before him and kind of believed him to have the uh, one true kind of method for medicine. Yes, exactly, exactly. Right, and, and the same with the people before before him, right? The yeah. In the Jinyuan, like the this Jinyuan uh, Four Masters period, they said, all of these people who are, who are uh, you know, prescribing based upon the Song Dynasty imperial books, the Taiping Kuen Ju Jifang, mm. right, um, are completely mistaken. And now we're going to show you what the real medicine is about based upon, you know, like Huang Di Neijing sort of uh, understanding, right? Yeah. So yeah. this has always been going on. And I think to a degree we have to recognize that this is what's going on a lot of the time when when people are talking about ah TCM this is this this like new thing and but we're going to show you the real medicine that came before it and I'll give a modern example that I find very interesting um, for instance with Liu Li Hong right I think a lot mm. of people have been interested in classical this book called classical Chinese medicine right. Which, which isn't a very actually good translation of the Chinese title. Do you agree? Because it's called Zhongyi Sikao. It's Sikao Zhongyi. I think it's it's sort of a polemic yeah. title. Yeah. I mean, I don't think they were going for a direct translation. I think no, no. But at the and, same and time, so, I think I think it, you know it might have been. Yeah, I think I think they were definitely trying to capture a certain audience in the West. <laughs> right, and and they did a good job because now we have a group on Facebook that's pretty big called classical Chinese medicine and practice. Right. Mm. And, and so, you know, Liu Li Hong, he does the exact same thing. He says, well, in the past, you know, 70 odd years with the, with, with TCM coming, coming into the world, Chinese medicine has just completely lost um, track of what it, of what it was before, yep. you know, and, and it's just, you know, and he makes some good points, you know, a lot of modern doctors like, they just sort of think in terms of like Western medicine and stuff. Mm, mm. Um, but of course, that's not what the the people during the 1950s and 60s were trying to do, you know, with 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 Bianzun too. But mm. but what I want to say is, um, you know, if you look at Liu Li Hong, if we really want to look at you know what he practices, which is coming out of uh, the Fire God School, right? Lu Lu Han and Lu Zhuzi and this mm. Lu lineage in, in Sichuan. Mm. Um, this, this has been characterized by sort of someone from the same generation as, as Liu Lihong Fu Wenlu, um, who is also a very, very uh, student of, of very high attainment in the school. He said, what happened with, with the fire god school was entirely a break from from what happened before it you know so this one it's not like this is um 
going back to the originals or stuff like that. I mean, if you actually look at the methodologies of the Hosam Pai, it's totally innovative in new stuff, mm. you know? So, so again, you just have to be careful and really recognize that narrative and this idea of, oh, well, you know, this is wrong, but we're going to go back to the original. This is wrong. We're going to go back to emotions. But then when you look at it, uh, how are emotions actually used? I guess that's, yeah. that's our, uh, um, that's where we come in, right? And I guess I would say, are these people who say that, you know, they're doing it, they're, they're treating emotions, are they kind of even treating them in the way that they were treated in the past? Or are they kind of, yeah, are they doing like a new aspect of it as well? But um, unfortunately, I'm, I'm not so privy to that information of, of how they treat. <laughs> so I can't comment yeah. on that. True, um, true. Yeah. All right. Is there, is there any other final remarks you have, Will? No, I think that, well, I mean, we should talk about like maybe what we'll, we'll get into next time. Well, I, I, th I think next time we'll probably still, we'll be looking at maybe a little bit more of uh, the topic of Bianjang Lunjiu, you know, and, and right. talking a little bit about that, maybe some other claims that people have made from it as well. I think if, uh, you know, anyone listening has any kind of discussions or opinions or feedback, you know, feel free to contact myself and Will. And we'd uh, we'd you know love love to hear from you guys. Yeah, yeah. Hopefully, it was an interesting conversation for people, yeah, <laughs> not just random ranting. You know, we're, yeah, we're looking forward to having some future guests on the show. We'll be talking about different aspects of Chinese medicine as well. I think uh, you know it, it's going to be pretty good, and we, we look forward to uh, keeping you guys listening to us. Indeed, indeed. All right. Thank you so much. Uh, I'm signing out. This is Michael Brown and my colleague Will Seville is with me. All right. Till next time. Thank you. Bye-bye. <laughs>